So do you have any spare keys around the house? Maybe a, a fake rock out in the garden that you have your, your house key in, or, or maybe a drawer somewhere in the kitchen that you've got a, an extra car key in. Maybe there's a, a special file cabinet at work, and, and you've got an extra key to that cabinet that you keep down in a, a drawer in your desk somewhere in your office. Or maybe you've got a spare key that goes with that hard shell suitcase that's in the closet down at the end of the hall where you keep your limited edition Star Wars, Star Trek, and ALF Pez dispensers. Yeah, we know who you are. Most of us have a spare key somewhere. The uh, Thames Valley District School Board in London, Ontario, they are about to get some serious spare keys. 10,000 spare keys, as a matter of fact. The board is going to spend $430,000 to get extra keys made for strategic doors throughout the 180 buildings in their school system. Now, why in the world are they doing that? Well, primarily it is for reasons of safety. You see, if one of those schools were to go on a lockdown, from what I understand, the teacher would need the ability to lock the door from the inside and unlock the door from the inside. But if there's a substitute teacher or a temporary replacement teacher, they may not have a key to that room. The room might be open for them before they get there in the morning. And so all these keys are going to be made so that anybody who has any leadership authority in each one of those rooms has an extra key. A key is available to them in case there is an emergency. They can use that key in the way they need to. Now, I don't know how the old Tim's Valley works and what their system's like, but just imagine with me, if you will, that all of those 10,000 keys, those spare keys are going to be run by one department. And that that one department has like five guys in the department, okay? And let's just give those guys some names just for fun, all right? Let's call them Huey, Dewey, Louie, Sneezy, and Pete. I know Pete doesn't go, but I just like Pete. So Pete's the ringleader of this crowd. They are the Tim's Valley Key Club. And they are in charge of these 10,000 spare keys. Now Pete tells the guys, you know what? Nobody respects us. You know, nobody really appreciates what we do in in managing all of these keys and all of these locks. We need to create a system, some kind of system that makes it harder for people to get these keys. We, We need to be in charge of these keys. And so Sneezy puts together a plan, you know. His plan is pretty intricate, but then Huey, Dewey, and Louie, and also Pete, they throw in their two cents on the plan, and before long, there is this very intricate plan that basically makes sure that it's almost impossible for you to get a spare key to your room. In fact, the way the plan works is the only way you're going to get in and out of that room is if one of those five guys comes and unlocks the door for you. So a plan, a system that had the intentions of being something that's helpful and safe has now turned into something where a small group of people have unhealthy authority and now there's also potential danger with the system that exists. We see this kind of thing in a lot of different places in our world today. Jesus had a conversation one time with some key masters Now, why in the world should you care about Jesus having a conversation a couple of thousand years ago with some guys that hung on to some keys? 
Well, the reason why you should care is primarily because of a few things going on in your life. You see, you right now may know somebody who's underneath an oppressive key master. Or you might know a key master right now that is oppressing someone. Or maybe you are an unhealthy, full of not necessary authority, key master oppressing someone else. Now, what are we talking about? What kind of key mastering are we talking about? Well, we're talking about something that's much deeper and has a more lasting impact than just a lockdown at a school. In fact, what we're talking about is the kind of key mastering that has the deepest and most lasting impact on your very soul. Listen, as we look at Luke chapter 11, we'll begin in verse 45. One of the lawyers said to him in reply, Teacher, when you say this, you insult us too. Jesus had been invited over for a brunch. And the host of the brunch was busy taking care of the food. But in the middle of the conversation over the brunch, Jesus begins to call the host and his friends out for distracting people from God with their religion. Now, the host is part of a group known as the Pharisees. The Pharisees were a a well-known leadership group, religious and in the community, and they loved for people to be impressed with them. And so Jesus is going to give them at this brunch a plate full of woes. Now, a woe is something where there is an accusation given or a verdict given to you, and you deserve it. By looking at your life, the conduct of your life, what's going on, a woe would be given to you as a judgment of declaration that you actually really do deserve. And so Jesus, right before this lawyer speaks up, has just given the Pharisees a woe that went something like this. He said, when you guys go out into the community, when y'all head out into town and in the city, y'all are actually contaminating people with spiritual darkness. You're not bringing spiritual light and life. You're contaminating people with spiritual darkness because your religion is so dead and dark and heartless. Now, just a social tip. If you're at a brunch and the special guest calls out the host and says that his religion is dead and dark and heartless, don't raise your hand and say anything. You know, just eat your quiche and be quiet. You do not need to be in that conversation. But this lawyer, he couldn't help it. He, he knew that what Jesus was saying about the Pharisees actually also applied to him. You see, the Pharisees had their own little group of lawyers, their own dream team, so to speak. And this guy was one of them. They're, they're also known as scribes. Now, these scribes, these lawyers, they're, they're not like the lawyers that we see on TV, right? They weren't the kind of guys that were going to find a way to to get you as much money as they possibly could because you fell off your fruit stripe inner tube in the kiddie pool at the hotel and splashed water on your brand new suede pumas. This is not what they were geared to do. These kind of lawyers were not trying to get you money. They were experts in the law of Moses. The law of Moses is basically the, the first five books of the Bible. And so these guys were experts as Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They knew those kind of laws. They knew what to tell you. But they weren't just experts in the law of Moses. They were experts at twisting the law. Experts at making it say kind of what they wanted it to say. 
the Pharisees, they showed up a hundred years, probably four to five hundred years before Jesus was even born. So they've had a long time to put together their little system. And this little system they had by the time Jesus was born had about 613 religious rules. And these rules were full of do's and don'ts. That was kind of the only thing it broke down into. There were a lot of stops and there were a lot of goes. But there were more stops than goes. There were 365 things that you were not supposed to do and a lot less that you were supposed to do. So what kind of things are we talking about? Well, sometimes they put a little combo deal together. Like one of their laws took some sanitation instructions from the book of Deuteronomy and combined them with some instructions about traveling on the Sabbath. And they came up with a law that said when you travel on the Sabbath, you cannot take a potty break. Can't do it. You cannot take a bathroom break. Now look, we're getting ready to load up the family truckster in a few weeks and head to see the in-laws in Arkansas. I can tell you one thing, we will not be using the Pharisee law book for our philosophy of bathroom breaks. It wasn't just the way they interpreted the law. It was the way they practiced the law that they were interpreting. They had these strange views, these strange laws, but but then the way they carried it out was very, very strange. Just like with the Pharisees, Jesus is going to give the scribes some woes. And here's the first one, verse 46. But he said, Woe to you lawyers as well, for you weigh men down with burdens hard to bear, while you yourselves will not even touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Imagine you got Sammy the scribe. And Sammy the scribe stands up at the the monthly Sunday night church conference meeting. And he says, according to the bylaws, if you're traveling to Arkansas, you cannot stop for a bathroom break. That is against the church bylaws, it dishonors God, and it would bring shame on our church. All right? So you head on out to Arkansas. And somewhere this side of Tupelo, Mississippi, you're at the gas and sip, putting some gas in your car, and you look over, and lo and behold, who is it? Sammy Describe. Sammy the scribe pulls up. You watch him get out of his car. He walks inside. You watch him walk through the bathroom door. So Sammy comes back out. You wander over. Sammy, hey, man, what what you doing out in these parts in Mississippi? And Sammy says, oh, I'm I'm on my way to Texarkana, Texas. My great aunt lives out there. She's going to be 100. We're having a big birthday party for her. And then you say, hey, let me just ask you a question. I mean, did you just go to the bathroom, Sammy? I mean, because you said Sunday night at conference that we, we can't do that. And Sammy says, well, yeah, but you see, I'm a scribe. And, and since I'm a scribe, and also since I'm going farther than you're going, more miles, actually Exodus 24.1 applies to me. I'm actually going to worship God at a distance when I go to my great aunt's birthday. So it's a little bit of a different story. See, what we discover was that Sammy the scribe is also Larry Loophole. You know, he, he's got a way out of it. See, that's what the scribes were known for. They would write these really difficult, impossible, hard-to-follow things that the average person would have a, a really hard time even getting close to obeying. And then they would say, well, that doesn't really apply to me because I'm the chairman of the, of the bylaws committee, or I'm the chairman of the deacons, or, or I'm the pastor. So since my position is what it is, that doesn't really apply to me. 
And I don't really have to help you figure that out. And Jesus looks at the scribes and he says, woe to you. Shame on you. Judgment on you. For creating rules that no one can follow. And then not following them yourselves and not even helping them to follow. Woe to you. Then he gets a second woe. Verses 47 and 48. Woe to you for you build the tombs of the prophets and it was your fathers who killed them. So you are witnesses and approve the deeds of your fathers because it was they who killed them and you build their tombs. This is a really interesting dynamic. If I try to put it in some modern terms, it's, it's almost like that the scribes were, were kind of the ones that raised the money for the statues and the museums and the tombs and the, and the flower vases for the Old Testament prophets. They, they were on the, the board of directors that, that looked over the society historical areas. They, they managed these things. And so imagine old Sammy the scribe, you know, the, the third Tuesday of every month, that's his day, to go down to the, the tomb of the prophet that was from his hometown and to change out the flowers. That was his job. But here's the twist. Sammy the scribe's great, great, great grandfather was the one that killed the hometown prophet. Now, someone might say, well, I mean, that's not Sammy's problem, right? I mean, we can't hold him accountable for what his great, 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 great grandfather did, right? I mean, Sammy's a modern man. You know, he's, he's more civilized. He's more enlightened. He's, he's evolved more. He's, he's more accepting. He's more tolerant. He's turned over a new leaf on the family tree. And that does sound good. I mean, we would hope that over hundreds of years that there would be a, a wiser sense of justice and mercy among the people, right? Because after hundreds of years, we live in a world where there's a lot more wisdom with justice and mercy, right? Or not. Does it seem like we've got a good hold on justice and mercy yet? Does it seem like we're taking care of justice and mercy well on our own? Or has our abandonment of God across the globe created a a sinkhole for justice and mercy? See, there's one problem with the idea that, that Sammy's different than his grandfather, and that's Jesus. See, Jesus says that while they're changing out the flowers at the tombs, and even though they're on the societies that are taking care of these things, they don't disprove and they don't hate the things that their grandfathers did. They're not against them at all. How do we know that? Look what Jesus says next. Look at verse 49. For this reason also the wisdom of God said, I will send to them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill, and some they will persecute. So God was going to send some more messengers, more messengers to proclaim his truth. These messengers were going to be different, though. They weren't going to have, you know, last names that end in ayah. They were going to have different kind of names, you know. They were going to have names like James and and Peter and, and John and Paul. But the scribes and the Pharisees, the modern ones, they were going to take those new messengers from God and they were going to do the exact same things that their ancestors did. And why were they going to do that? Well, because the message was still going to be the same. See, the old prophets and the new prophets, they always talked about what it means to have true saving faith in God. And true saving faith in God is always and will always be about the surrender of your heart to God. 
The heart is the issue. Scribes didn't like that. The Pharisees didn't like that. See, they didn't like it being about your heart. They felt it needed to be whether or not you could hold it from South Carolina to Arkansas. That's true religion to them. So this notion of what the prophets would say, that your heart needs to be right with God, that's, that's a strange thing to them. And so Jesus presses in a little more. Look at verse 50. So that the blood of all the prophets shed since the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. Imagine you are the lawyer at this brunch. At this point, I'll say, imagine I'm the lawyer at this brunch. I'm probably going to be ticked off right now. I'm going to be offended. I'm going to be defensive. Why? Well, Jesus is sitting across the table for me, and he's saying that I'm going to be charged with 3,000 years worth of murders. And in case I missed that, in case I was reaching for a croissant, Jesus made it a little more clear. Look at verse 51. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the house of God. Yes, I tell you, it shall be charged against this generation. So Jesus just summed up 3,000 years with two names. He starts with the first murder in humanity, Abel. And then he goes to the second one by his notations at the end of the Old Testament era with somebody named Zechariah. And Zechariah, he was killed by church people just outside of the sanctuary. So this is the the picture that Jesus paints. And why were they killed? Where they were killed because their message was still the same. Their message was about true saving faith in God. And true saving faith in God works against and is a threat to religious legalism. So what is religious legalism and why is it dangerous? Well, religious legalism is basically where a person says, I'm going to make things right between me and God, or I'm going to keep things right between me and God by certain things that I do or certain things that I don't do. And I'm going to do those things and not pay attention to the status of my heart. In other words, I'm going to try to do or don't do things to make things right with God, but I'm not going to consider and evaluate where my heart is with God. So why is that dangerous? Pastor Eric Raymond gives four reasons why religious legalism is dangerous. The first one goes like this. It promotes unbiblical standards or self-authority. What does that look like? What does that mean? Well, think of it this way. Well, We send our kids to public school, so that makes us better witnesses for Jesus. We homeschool, so that makes us more holy before Jesus. Or something like this. Well, you know what? Our church, it's really the best church because we're contemporary. Or our church, we're really the best church because we're traditional. Or I know Jesus would vote Republican. I know Jesus would vote Democrat. You see, what we end up with is promoting us. And religious legalism is dangerous because it either casually or on purpose makes us demand that God agree with our opinions. That's danger. It's also foolish to think that God is going to listen to our demands that he agrees with us. Religious legalism promotes self-authority and unbiblical standards. 
It also promotes performance or self-righteousness. It goes something like this. Well, I know my heart's not right with God, but you know what? If anybody in my neighborhood has something that breaks, they know that I will help them fix it. Well, I know my heart's not really right with God, but I never miss my kids' ball games. I never miss their recitals. I know my, my heart's not right with God, but, but my company, we sponsor a charity golf tournament, and I'm the chairman of the planning committee every year. I know my heart's not right, and I'm being a terrible spouse, but hey, I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't do drugs, I don't do anything bad. I know my heart's not right with God, and I know I'm being a terrible parent, but hey, you know what? I, I put food on the table. I know my heart's not right with God, and, and I'm being a, a terrible son. I'm being a terrible daughter to my parents, but hey, you know what? I make good grades. You see, this, this performance, this self-righteousness, this is what it does. It encourages us to try to cut deals with God. That we try to take some of our good deeds, and we say, well, God, because I've done this, things should be okay with us. And again, we don't look at our hearts. Religious legalism also promotes division. This is not just like a church thing either. Religious legalism, it promotes division in your marriage. It promotes division between you and your kids. It promotes division at work. It promotes division at church. It promotes division just about anywhere. Religious legalism takes the heart out of the conversation. Eric Raymond says this, We act like there is only a limited number of spots available for us. And so we have to cut others down, biting and devouring one another in pursuit of our prize. We falsely think that the competition is between us and other people, so we set up rules and tear down others, judging and defrauding one another. In this, we fail to see that the issue is not between us and others, but us and God. See, legalism convinces you that your problem, your main problem is with your spouse. Legalism convinces you your main problem is with your kids. Legalism convinces you your main problem is with your politicians or your boss or your pastor or the police officer or your teacher or anybody else in the world. But the gospel convinces you that it's between you and God first. That your heart with God is the primary issue and everything else flows from that. That's why religious legalism is so dangerous. And then one more, maybe the the worst part, the most dangerous part, is religious legalism actually demotes Jesus. It actually makes sure that we we take Jesus almost completely out of the conversation, or at least we make him a a trinket down at, at, at part number four. Again, Raymond says this, We must see that fastening your grip upon other things is a loosening of our grip upon Jesus. So what could a loose grip on Jesus lead to in your life? Well, it could lead to you sitting across from Jesus at brunch and him telling you that you're going to be charged with 3,000 years worth of murders that you didn't commit. So, So why this harsh language from Jesus toward a guy that, that really you know, seems to be innocent. We're going to answer that question in just a moment, but Jesus has one more woe. Look at verse 52. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You yourselves did not enter, and you hindered those who were entering. This is the saddest and harshest woe that I think he gives the scribes. 
It's not just that they've created standards that are impossible to meet. It's not just they created standards that, that undermine and really oppose God's truth. But they have these keys to knowledge, these spare keys, and, and they're hiding them so that nobody else can get them. But here's the even sadder part. They think their master key works, and it doesn't. They claim to be God's leaders, but they were actually keeping people away from God. They were keeping people from seeing God. William Tyndall, he had an issue with the fact that the average person could not read the Bible. There wasn't a Bible in their language that they could understand. So everybody in town, they're, they're going to these services, and, and the, the church services were all these rituals, and they were all in Latin, and no one understood a word that was going on. But, but they just kind of went through the motions and assumed that was exactly what was supposed to happen. Tyndall thought that was wrong. He felt like that, that there needed to be a, a Bible in someone's hand that they could actually read. It said that one time he was talking to a priest and he said something like this, I don't know how many more years I have on this earth, but I'm going to use it with purpose and passion to make sure that a boy who drives a plow knows more about the Bible than you one day. And he did, with all of his purpose and passion, make a translation of the Bible that the average guy could understand. And the church hunted him down and they made sure he was executed for it. You see, who we're listening to really matters when it comes to truth. We want truth, right? I mean, does anybody want your mechanic to lie to you? You Does anybody want your accountant to lie to you? I mean, do you go to your taxes and say, you know what, just lie about what I owe? (laughs) No, we, we want the truth, right? We don't go to the doctor and say, you know what, look, I don't really care if you tell me the truth. I'm going to do whatever I want, so doesn't matter. Don't tell me the truth. No, we want the truth. We want people to tell us the truth. We value truth. But what about the truth that's connected to your soul? John MacArthur writes, If the doctor lies to you or the lab lies to you, it could affect you physically. If your accountant lies to you or your money manager lies to you or business associate lies to you, it could affect you economically. If your spouse lies to you or your children lie to you, it could affect you socially. There are a lot of things that can go wrong in this life, but if whoever you trust to tell you the truth about the life to come lies to you, well, that damns you forever. Look, we're not hiding any spare keys around here. We boldly and joyfully commend to you the Bible as God's holy book of truth and life. And we would plead with you to read it. We boldly and joyfully commend to you Jesus as the only way and the only truth and the only life. And we plead with you to follow him. We boldly and joyfully commend to you that there's only one key Just just one key that's going to open up the treasure chest of peace and satisfaction for your soul. And that key begins with this line. Christ died for your sins. And we plead with you to believe in him, to trust in him, to rely on him, to cling to Jesus as your only source of hope for this life and the life after you breathe your last. Somebody might say, well, there's a lot of religions in the world. I mean, 
maybe Christianity isn't the only religion. Maybe it's not the right one. I mean, maybe all these people at Holland Avenue, I mean, they're, they're super nice people, but in the end, they're just going to be a lot of nice, well-meaning liars. We are not commending to you our church this morning. We are not commending to you our history. We're not commending to you our denomination. We're not commending the, the style of dress or the style of music or the, the programs we have for youth and children. That's not what we're offering. We are ultimately offering just one thing to you, Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God. That's what we offer to you today. Tim Keller writes, Other religions bring you a prophet or they bring you a sage and they say, this is the way to find God. Christianity comes along and says this person is God and he was raised from the dead to prove it. And that, he says, is just a different category. Instead of saying, I like this religion because it meets my needs or I like these thoughts, you have to say, did this happen or did it not? On many occasions, Jesus spoke to the scribes and the Pharisees and he said, I'm God. And how did they respond? Listen to verses 53 and 54. When Jesus left there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to be very hostile and to question him closely on many subjects, plotting against him to catch him in something that he might say. So here's our answer to the question earlier. Why did Jesus bring these harsh murder charges against a guy who seemed to be innocent? Well, here's why. He wasn't innocent. You see, rather than listen to this rebuke from Jesus, rather than repent of the sin that Jesus was bringing before them graciously over brunch, these scribes and these Pharisees, they puffed up with defiant pride. And can I just say, I probably have had a few Sundays like that myself. Probably when I was a teenager. Probably sitting on the back road. Maybe Sunday morning, Sunday night. I heard what Dr. Charles Page said in his sermon. I heard what Dr. Tom Billings said in his sermon. I heard what my youth pastor said. I heard what the camp pastor said. And I listened and I enjoyed it and I thought it was really good. But then there were other times that I listened and I went, Step off, man. Pack off. Now, you're, you're pressing too hard. See, it's easy for us to look at the scribes and Pharisees and say, that's not me. But it is us sometimes. We hear God's word and we, we push against it. But their pushing was, was pretty dramatic and pretty radical because their pushing, their refusal to listen to Jesus at brunch, you know what it led to? Listen to Matthew chapter 27, verses 1 and 2. Now when morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people conferred together against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and they led him away and they delivered him to Pilate the governor. See, this execution, it was going to be different than the executions of the Old Testament prophets. See, they weren't delivering over a Zechariah or, or an Abel or a William Tyndall. No, they had captured a different kind of messenger. They had captured the Messiah. They were driving their pride to actually kill Jesus. 
but don't miss this. It wasn't an accident that Jesus was captured. You see, the scribes and the Pharisees, they thought, oh man, good, we've got him, you know. We've got him arrested. We've got him out of the public eye. And now we've even moved far enough to get him into position to now be executed. We've got him taken care of. See, they thought they were hindering Jesus. They thought they were holding Jesus back from his mission. But nothing could be farther from the truth. It was impossible for them to hold Jesus back from his mission. In fact, their actions actually promoted the process of Jesus carrying out his mission. They didn't hinder Jesus. And friends, let me be clear. No one will hinder Jesus from fulfilling and completing the rest of his mission. So what does that have to do with you? What does any of this have to do with your life this week? Well, first, it should remind us that we should not be shocked when we hear about political unrest around the world. We shouldn't be shocked that there's political and social unrest in in Turkey. Shouldn't be shocked there's political and social unrest in the South China Sea. We shouldn't be shocked that there's political and social unrest in, in Great Britain or in downtown Columbia or in your kitchen. Because sin is not a difference of opinion. Sin is not a roundtable discussion. Sin is sin. It is real. It is evil. And Jesus died for sin. And Jesus very clearly said there would be political unrest. There would be social unrest. There would be war. He was clear that it was coming. And so when we see these things, our first response should not be to go rent the Da Vinci Code and to get out a map and a protractor and a compass and, you know, let's see what we can figure out and and get some codes and some dates together. Now, we're not supposed to obsess over dates and codes. But likewise, we're not supposed to look at the events of the world and just go get a smoothie or go get a snowball or or go get a soft serve and, and just ignore what's happening. Both of those are wrong. No, we've been called to pay attention, and we've been called to learn, and sometimes we're called to give, and sometimes we're called to volunteer, and sometimes we're called to fight, and sometimes we're called to run for office. But as believers, as followers of Jesus, we are definitely called to pray, and we are most definitely called to fix our eyes on Jesus always. You see, the very nature of the gospel tells us that no matter what the tragedy, no matter what the crisis, no matter what the unrest, there is always hope in the love and the authority and the power of Jesus. Jesus can change anything. But if things don't change the way we would hope they would, it does not in any way change who Jesus is. And when things don't change the way we hope they would, we remember that what Jesus did with evil, his victory over evil, was not temporary. It was final. It was sure. It was decisive. It was perfect. And it lasts forever. And so we take that victory that has been defined perfectly in Jesus and we begin to look at the world and we grieve and we pray and we mourn and we help when we can. But we also remember that there is no president and there is no king 
and there is no queen, and there is no dictator. There is no philosophy. There's no celebrity. There's no army. There's no smartphone app. There's absolutely nothing that has the names King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Only Jesus. No codes, no rituals, no unnecessary laws, no hidden keys. We have just one thing to offer, and that's this. Jesus is God, and he rose from the dead to prove it. That is the hope we offer because it is all of our hope and all of our peace.